Welcome to Concordia Journal Currents. My name is Leopoldo Sanchez, and I'm an Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and the Director of our Center for Hispanic Studies here at Concordia Seminary. And today, I have the privilege, the honor of having uh, with me the Reverend Dr. Douglas Grohl, who is a Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology uh, at Concordia Seminary and also the former director of the center, as it was called earlier, the Hispanic Institute of Theology, almost 20 years. Right, uh, 19 years, yeah. 19 mm -hmm. years. And so you bring with uh, you a wealth of experience and stories about the early days of this uh, great venture. Theological education in the Spanish language in the United States for Hispanic Latino communities. Tell us a little bit about uh, maybe the beginnings of, of the Hispanic Institute. Uh, as you know, this year, 2012, we celebrate 25 years. It's amazing to think of oh, yeah. 25 years. Well, I think what we've got is um, time the Hispanic Institute came about at a unique time. You have to remember that uh, in the 60s and 70s, these were times of awakening uh, for toward Hispanic and Latin missions for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. After World War II, they had sent, Missouri Synod sent missionaries to Cuba and the old missions in Argentina had been there since the first part of the 20th century. In the 1950s, there was a little Bible Institute in Monterrey, Mexico, that was there to try to train and to train uh, Mexican and Mexican-American pastors. Our good friend Domingo, uh, Ruben Dominguez's father was a graduate of that. Hmm. So over the years, there were in the second part of the 20th century, a heightened interest on the part of the church to do missions, first of all, in Spanish, for Hispanics, both in Latin America and in the United States. And then as missionaries would come back, they would find their way into these missions. And as the Cuban missionaries especially came back from Cuba and worked north in New York City, and in Miami, coupled with the work in Texas that uh, the sainted Dr. Melendez started back in the 30s, plus work out on the West Coast that was almost a century old now. So there were a lot of things happening in the 50s and the 60s, and there was the will, the institutional will, on the part of districts. For example, the Florida Georgia District was funding five and six and seven uh, missions. Uh, New York City, there was there were Hispanic missions. Ohio was funding three missions in the 70s. Northern Illinois District had six and seven missions happening in and so in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were a lot of projects going and consequently there was a need to train people. Uh, through the 70s there were conventions 
and the synodical conventions kept saying, do something. And finally, about 1977, the old Institute for Hispanic Missions was established on the campus of Concordia River Forest because Chicago was a center of Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans. So they felt at that time the best place to place an institute was in Chicago. That way you could hit all of the different groups. Uh, Dr. Herb Sims uh, monitored, took under his wing that. He, Dr. Albert Garcia, uh, they put together, they worked with Carlos Puig, uh, who was the executive of missions at that time. And so from 78 till about 85, there was actually a residential program under the colloquy board of the Synod. Somewhere mid-80s, they could see, however, uh, that though the Synod was committing serious funds to this program, they weren't getting enough students because the students had to come in and live on the campus or, they, or, or nearby. They had to bring their families. It was a three-year program. Some years, districts would have the money to send a student. Some years, they wouldn't. So you'd have 12 students one year, three students the next, and you had a faculty that you had to justify the existence. So in the 80s, 85, 86, the Board for Education um, said to Carlos Puig, you know, we, uh, we're not against investing in the program, but is there any way we could get more students for the funding that we're, 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 in, we're investing? And because some of us who were back in the States from overseas had worked with theological extension in Latin America, uh, they began to talk to us about doing theological education by extension. And so in 86, the decision was made to move from a residential-based program on the campus of Concordia River Forest to a, an extension format, taking into account the fact that Concordia River Forest had an extensive television studio that would be able to produce videotapes and would be able to execute a program out of River Forest using O'Hare Midway to get good travel around the country. In those days, weekend travel was cheaper. If you left on Friday afternoon and came back on Sunday evening, your prices would go way down. So we built a whole program on being able to get video materials out with program textbooks that com complemented the video materials. And then we would send our instructors out, uh, Professors Juan Berndt, Robert Gonzalez, uh, myself, uh, and at different times uh, later than Professor Dominguez uh, became part of this rotating traveling faculty that would interact with regional instructors uh, to implement the program. Our students always were under and with a, an ordained pastor. Always regional instructors were ordained pastors. It's interesting that you had uh, really a pioneering uh, 
place in the Senate. I mean, there was already back then a sense that we needed to do Hispanic theological formation in the Spanish language in the United States. Yes. And this is before uh, the huge uh, boom in the Hispanic population in the United States. So in a sense, we were kind of ahead of the game uh, a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting that, that you bring that up because um, I remember different church bodies sent uh, people to River Forest. We once met with uh, the group of, uh, I believe, Assemblies of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee. I believe that's where they're from. Another group out of Indiana. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America sent people to us. And the Roman Catholic Diocese of Chicago sent representatives to see how we were putting together our program for, for lay training. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, the Hispanic Roman Catholic community in the United States has an extensive mm -hmm. diaconal program. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. everybody was kind of interested yeah, yeah. in what we were doing. Yeah, it, was, now, it, was, it was fascinating times. You know, um, um, uh, and this also at a time when uh, nobody was really committing to anything but residential education. That's right. So, you know, a pioneering presence in Senate, even in, in terms of the whole idea of what now is called distance, but back then more of a satellite uh, theological right. education by extension where you go to a site to teach courses and so on. We were very cognizant from the beginning that given the tone of our synod at the time coming out of the, 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 the upheavals of the 70s that we had to maintain and assure the church that we were being faithful to our confessional and, and doctrinal situation. And so for that reason we said we always want our materials, even though they could be standalone materials, we always want our materials moderated by people who, uh, who know the Christian faith and, and who, and who are, are at home in the church. What we now call the uh, mentor That's right. on site. That's right. Now I'm dying to, to ask you, uh, you came as a missionary from Latin America, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in Venezuela, where, uh, right. where you spend a lot of time there, and then you land in the United States and you're faced with the Hispanic Latino. Reality. It took years to figure that out for me. I remember the first years back when I was in Cleveland at Trinity Lutheran Church working with a Puerto Rican community. And it took me maybe two to three years for it to sink in mm. that I was not dealing with Spanish-speaking Venezuelans. Okay. That I was speaking, I was dealing with the North American Hispanic in all the varieties that. Mm. And I, in, in my little group of Puerto Rican Christians, Lutherans in Cleveland, here's the variety. I had uh, one lady who spoke Spanish, read English, but did not read Spanish. <laughs> I had other people that would speak English, read Spanish, and not read English. That's the variety that you see within the Hispanic makeup, because what we're seeing is always people in transition. Uh, there is no such thing as, as, a, as a 
Hispanic, English speaker, Latin, uh, Spanish speaker in the United States. Everybody yeah. is usually moving from one level to another. And, and that's what's difficult in education, mm -hmm. to, to try to say, where do I throw my dart mm -hmm. to see where I can educate at somewhere along the spectrum. It's a fascinating challenge. From the language, uh, from the language and place uh, of origin to mm -hmm. the new land, the new language, and everything in between. And everything in between. And everything yeah. in between. Mm -hmm. um, I tell uh, uh, people here at Concordia Seminary that our Center for Hispanic Studies group of students is actually one of the most diverse groups of students uh, I have ever had. Mm -hmm. You have anything from South American students to Central American to Caribbean to uh, North of Mexico, quite different. Uh, even in their worldview at times. Right. And so while Hispanic has been sort of minoritized as this one little group, in reality it's quite a diverse group. So I guess that's one of the first lessons you learn coming into the United States, that Hispanic Latina really is kind of a range of, right. of worldviews right. and, and, uh, and so on. Now, what, as you became more familiar with the Hispanic Latino reality, because you were teaching Hispanic Latinos in the U.S., and you have to make theology kind of uh, uh, intelligible mm -hmm. to, to that context and community. Uh, what are some of the themes that, uh, whether theological or pastoral or, or missional, what are some of the things of, uh, themes of Hispanic Latino uh, thought that uh, became important to you know, take an account of in your teaching and reflection? Okay, well, uh, here's a couple, uh, maybe. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with, let's say, the Cuban community in Miami or anywhere, but st most strongly in, in Miami, you have to deal with the sense of exile. Hmm. That though there are Cubans in Miami with uh, quite nice homes, swimming pools, there is always a sense, I don't really belong here, I return, I want to return. Hmm. And, and, and in many cases, Cubans identify themselves to the degree and when they left Cuba. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in many cases, almost, there is a sense of guilt. I'm living well. My family in Cuba is not. Is not yeah. mm -hmm. So there, there are some of these complexes of, of the exile community. And as Christians, we might want to think back to the Old Testament, mm -hmm. um, the exile theology, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Might be considering... Uh, not exile so much as journey, Mexican-American, uh, even the Puerto Rican in a sense, who is, whose life uh, is, is, is viewed in terms of moving from the homeland to this other place, and sometimes perhaps especially in the case of maybe the Mexican-American or Mexican who, who immigrates. Uh, he actually does want a promised land. 
in in literature even there is the whole idea of going to the to a promised land in the north there are, are mexican writers that talk about this and so so they're viewing coming to the united states as perhaps an answer and it brings lots of problems uh, to many of them uh, in terms of they don't find the riches that they had wanted. Uh, life is difficult and often they're here always having to look, not always, but many times without proper documentation. There's, there's uh, 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 what's called uh, unlawful presence. Uh, uh, our, our immigration laws talk about unlawful entry and unlawful presence, and mm -hmm. sometimes people are caught in this. And so they're in a journey. They're coming and going. And, and again, uh, there have been uh, Latin American writers that have talked about coming from the hinterlands, Galilee, uh, so, far, so far away from Jerusalem, uh, uh, Juarez, Mexico, so far away from Washington, D.C., or New York, or Chicago. And so you have the whole idea of the journey and, and, and how, how Christians can feel, and especially looking at the Christian faith from the point of view of the person who is like the Galilean, who is in transit, who is traipsing up and down the Holy Land, who, who is of the country, but in a sense, um, foxes have holes mm -hmm. and, and has nowhere to lay his head. And the Mexican who's in transit is experiencing the same angst. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's something there to try to relate to with the gospel, to assure them that Christ is with them in their journey. And though they don't have a house, they, they don't have documents, they don't have secure employment, and, and, and immigration might be knocking on their door tomorrow, that Christ won't let them alone. Mm -hmm. Christ will be with them. It's, it's interesting then how uh, the Hispanic Latino experience can really help us, uh, the broader church, help us uh, understand better some biblical themes that perhaps we just kind of, you know, run over and really uh, don't pause to reflect on the exile theme, the Galilean journey theme, uh, what is what it's like to be a Galilean today, mm -hmm. you know, not Mexican enough for the Mexicans, yeah, yeah, right, not right. North American enough yeah. for the North Americans, right. but a mestizaje, right. an in-between mm -hmm. identity, you know, of Mexican-Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, to, and to consider themes like that, I mean, you mentioned immigration, we could probably talk about Virgin of Guadalupe, and all That's kinds right. yeah. of things, you know, yeah. but I, I'm really looking forward uh, to your article uh, which will be published in the summer issue uh, 2012 of Concordia uh, Journal, uh, where you will help us uh, reflect a little bit on those themes uh, and you know how the Lutheran Church might actually be uh, well positioned to to talk about that. Uh, why do we need a, a center for Hispanic studies uh, uh, today, Doug? I mean, you you kind of kicked that off, uh, and and today's been 25 years now. And um, what are your reflections on that? Where, where are we heading, you think? First of all, you know, we, we've, we have to consider the demographics. Mm -hmm. Whether the Missouri Synod does anything or not, uh, yeah. the realities are there that we're looking, uh, the statistics tell us by 2040, uh, 
people who can trace their origins back to Europe will be in the minority. Now that doesn't mean all of that 51% will be Hispanic, but we're just, we're talking about a, a society that's radically different than what we're experiencing today. And, and part of the challenge of uh, a, uh, a noble institution, a noble educational institution, is that's in service to the church is to adjust itself in such a way that it prepares men and women for ministry in this, in this changing context. Mm -hmm. uh, it has, in the last years before I retired, I remember getting a telephone call one day from a Lutheran pastor on an Indian reservation in Montana who said, I'm on this Indian reservation in Montana, but there is a village within the American Indian reservation that's principally Hispanic, Mexican. Do you have materials? What can I do? And all over the United States, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, all these areas that we traditionally thought were going to continue to be sort of permanently uh, Anglo-American, uh, I would guess that most of our parishes anywhere in the United States are not further than five miles from a significant contribution uh, presence of Hispanics. Mm -hmm. If Concordia Seminary or any other institution does not prepare people uh, to work with these groups, we will be uh, increasingly, uh, number one, not helping them but the other side is what we won't receive. Uh, this week, yesterday in my class here at the seminary with our six gentlemen from different parts of the United States, Hispanics from different countries, uh, and, and, and I'm old enough not to be too impressed by a lot of things, but these six gentlemen, I sat back and I thought, my goodness, what wonderful gifts they bring to the table. Their, their joy in believing, their songs, their humor, but their perception of where they fit in the gospel and their desire, their burning desire to speak the gospel. And we can really use that. We can really use that. Well, Doug, I'm really looking forward to seeing the publication of your article in the next summer issue of Concordia Journal. I thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, for being as always. here with us and sharing your thoughts on this 25th anniversary of the Center for Hispanic Studies. Look for that article in the summer issue of Concordia Journal. This is Leo Sanchez. Thanks.